Let me invite you this morning to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be wrapping up the book of Jonah this morning. We have, uh, we've gone on quite a journey, literally to the bottom of the earth, uh, to the beach, let's just say covered in that which is not necessarily all that clean. We've ran away from God, we've ran to God. This morning I want to I confront us, if you will, with the Word of God about what happens when God calls us to those people. What happens when God calls us to those people? I remember the first time that I heard a man tell me about the actions that led to his life sentence in the North Carolina State Penitentiary. He was a white guy, about 40 years old, I guess, but he looked a whole lot older. For some reason, I remember when we would shake hands, his hands were, were very, very soft, as though, he'd never, as though he'd never picked up anything, really. He was a smaller guy, and I know that's most everybody compared to me, but this guy was about, I don't know, Five, 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 three, five, four, and there's no way he weighed 135 pounds. His prison clothes literally just hung off his body. I met him for the first time on a Thursday night as we began our weekend ministry at the Bertie County Correctional Institute. We sat together at the same table. We shared a number of meals. By Friday afternoon, we'd heard several message, messages from the speakers of the weekend. We'd spent, some, we'd spent some meditative time together in various chapel services. We were talking quite a bit, and really we were just developing a, a relationship, developing a friendship very, very quickly. When I arrived with the team at the institution on Saturday morning, he asked me immediately if we could talk in private. We had a small counseling room set up, and I told him that we could go in there. And so we sat face to face with each other, almost our knees touching, knee to knee. And I remember calling him by name and asking him what was on his mind, what's, what's on your heart. And that's when the tears began to flow. The, the big kind of tears, what my granny used to call crocodile tears. After a moment or two of silence, he took a deep breath, looked me in the eye, and he said, I killed him. I killed my son. I don't need to detail the next 45 minutes of our conversation, but I do want you to know that there were two emotions violently competing within my spirit. One of them, on the one side, I wanted to reach out and I wanted to grab this man by the throat and avenge his son's needless death. On the other hand, I wanted to reach out 
and embrace this man and remind him that God's love conquers all and that he is the God who eternally loved us so much that his son, God's son, would willingly die for us. I'm thankful I chose the latter of those two responses. I would love to tell you that was the last difficult conversation I've ever had, but it's not. I've had hundreds of them over the last decade. Conversations about the loss of life, the selling of drugs, abuse, sexual violence, hate, kidnapping, arson, gang activity. But I've also had hundreds of conversations about grace and hope and mercy and healing and forgiveness. I've had conversations with dads who were reconciling with their children after they had killed their mother. I've had conversations with wives who were reconciling with their husbands after they had harmed their children. And though I wrote this about a week and a half ago, just Friday I had a conversation that matched this one, a co-defendant who had his partner turn on him. They hated each other. They wanted each other dead, and yet now they are united as brothers. I've seen the worst in man, but by the grace of God, I've seen his redemption that comes through genuine repentance and belief. And I've seen this take place in so many different lives. I've seen it take place in the lives of white men and black men and Hispanic men, Asian men, straight men, gay men, men who lived as women and men who used to be women. This has taken place in the lives of gang members and murderers and rapists and child abusers. And while I am no way condoning the horrendous actions of some people, I am telling you that God's grace is sufficient to save even those people. Jonah was faced with this difficult reality too. He hated, he hated the Ninevites. He hated them so much that when God saved them, his prayer was, God, kill me. He hated them so much that he wanted to die because God would extend grace. Friends, as we look at this chapter, to a large extent, it's a warning. It's a warning to you. It's a warning to me. It's a warning to our church. And it's a warning to the church. Because God's grace is abundantly sufficient to save to the uttermost even those people, whomever they may be. I want us to look at this final chapter of Jonah, and I want to ask ourselves, what do we do? What do we do when 
God calls us to those people. Maybe we can do like Jonah and go ahead and get mad. Maybe we can be like Jonah and go ahead and get mad. Let me invite you, if you've got Jonah chapter 4 opened up, to read the first four, four verses with me. Verse 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, back in Israel? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. In verse 4, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Friends, just, just, just think about this for a minute. Can, you be, can we be mad? The, word, the Bible here says, uses the words exceedingly displeased. Can we be exceedingly displeased because God saves our enemy? Can you imagine getting mad? Because God saved anybody. Ima imagine this scene. We come to church the week after vacation Bible school. And we report to the church that, that four kids have given their life to Christ. And we, we celebrate. We clap. But then, then we report that, that one of them attends One Life Church and another one attends the Methodist Church. And, well, instead of celebrating, we boo. Not there. Not there. I want you to see the irony, the incredible irony in jo Jonah's statement in verse 2. Jonah cries out and he says, I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you would relent from this disaster. Folks, these these words should be words of celebration. God, you are gracious. God, you are merciful. God, you are slow to anger. God, you abound in steadfast love. God, you forgive. And you withhold hell from those who repent and believe. It sounds like it should be a worship song not a complaint but that's exactly what Jonah is doing Jonah is acknowledging some of God's most cherished attributes some of his most wonderful characteristics and he is calling them evil and wicked and wrong let me ask you a very serious question who do you hate so much that you would rather they go to hell than come to Christ? Who do we hate so much that we will not respond to the call of God to take the gospel to 
because we just don't like them. Now listen, if you had an answer to that question, you're doing the same thing Jonah did. If you had any answer to that question, you're doing the same thing Jonah did, and it may be time to check your own relationship with Christ. Have you ever had a gospel conversation? A gospel conversation, not an argument or a fight, but a gospel conversation with someone from another religious faith. Have you ever had a gospel conversation with someone from another religious faith? How many times have we posted on social media our nation's need to keep Muslims out of our country as compared to sharing the gospel with people who practice the Muslim faith? How many times have we posted on Facebook this nation's need to keep our Hispanic neighbors out as opposed to sharing the gospel with them? I, I come across this article this week from NPR. NPR, National Public Radio, not an organization that necessarily has a reputation for celebrating the work of the church and the work of, the, of Christ. But I come across this article in NPR that published a story about how the evangelical church in El Salvador, the evangelical church in El Salvador, the world headquarters for gang violence, and a place that you all know is dear to my heart as I've been there several times, but the evangelical church in El Salvador is leading young gang members to Christ and out of the gangs. Those people that our nation is calling animals are becoming brothers in their homeland. And my question is this. I wonder if we were more intent on sharing the gospel, would we not have different results as well? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. And in heaven there are none of those people. Jonah got mad because he knew that God's grace would abound to the chiefest of sinners in Nineveh. And he really didn't think he wanted to live in a world where God would save those sinners, those people. So he says in verse number 3, Oh Lord, can you imagine this prayer? Oh Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than gang members come to know Christ. It's better for me to die than to live. You know, it's one thing if Jonah is worshiping the Lord and he comes into his presence, into the presence of his, his tremendous saving grace. I, I could understand these words if they were uttered in a sense of, of coming into the presence and in the awe of God and saying, God, I'm not worthy even to live in your presence. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of such a glorious God. But that's not the reality here. That's not the context. Because when Jonah cries this out, God asks him, do you have a right to be angry? Do, 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 is, it, is it right for you to be mad at God because he saves sinners. Jonah basically says, yes. 
it is. One last story I was sharing this with somebody a week or so ago. and Just jog my memory. I remember many years ago, 15 years ago or thereabouts, I was sitting in what I'll call a church meeting being criticized because one of the kids that we bust in had kicked a hole in the drywall of a classroom. The argument went something like this. We can't have these kids coming in here if all they're going to do is tear the place up. I know nobody here has ever said that. They've never been in church. Their parents are deadbeats. won't take responsibility for them. And until they know how to behave, I don't think we ought to let them come. And by the way, they leave the bus a mess too. My response, sir, how much do you think it's going to cost to fix that hole in the wall? I don't know. It's the principal. I don't know what all he said. I said, no, how much do you think it's going to cost? He said, probably $30 or so. So I said, now, I'm all for helping kids learn how to behave in public. But are you really going to let a $30 hole in the wall keep you from sharing the gospel with a kid who has never heard of Jesus? Is $30 really worth sending those kids to hell? I didn't get a response. Friends, I pray that we celebrate when God chooses to save anyone from any lifestyle, with any past, from any religion, from every race and nation and language. And he chooses to use our witness to do it. The day we get angry, the day we get mad because God is merciful, the day we get mad because God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is the day that we need to fall on our face and repent and pray. Pray God will relent from the disaster that is awaiting us. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? You see, when, when we get angry, we've got to remember the second thing this passage tells us, and that is that the Lord's appointments will be kept. The Lord's appointments will be kept. Look at verses 5 through 8. Jonah Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and he made a booth. The booth is like a little tent thing. Made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it, might, that it might provide a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Some of you are already smiling. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose... God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And Jonah learned all of his lessons and said, Lord, thank you. No, that's not what the Bible says. And he asked that he might die again. It's better for me to die than to live. Folks, I swear, verse 5 reminds me of two things. 
and I am trying not to be overly critical here because I know, I know just how guilty of I, am, I am of this. I know how guilty I am. But it reminds me of a five-year-old who didn't get their way. And it reminds me too often of church leaders and church members who don't get their way. And so we go up into the corner and we sit and we pout. <laughs> Jonah is mad. So he stomps away from God and goes and sits on a hill to watch the city. He's hoping for fire and brimstone to come raining down. But he's pretty sure that God's going to forgive. So he pouts because he didn't get away. Didn't get his way. We used to sing this little song when we were kids when somebody was pouting. Y'all may know it. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll just eat worms. Big ones, fat ones, skinny ones too, fuzzy ones, slimy ones. Just watch them squirm. You know, in this moment, Jonah is no longer the running prophet. He's the pouting prophet. He's the pouting prophet. But then we see God's appointments. Then we see God's appointments. In verse 6, the Bible says, God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. Didn't you hate it when you were kids and, and you were mad at your parents, but they did good for you anyway? They, 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 they let you go to the birthday party or they bought you the ice cream cone anyway or they went ahead and took you to grandma's house. You just couldn't stay mad very long. And so here, Jonah gets happy. Indeed, the Bible says, exceedingly glad because of this plant. Notice this is the same way his displeasure was described, was described in verse 1, when he was exceedingly angry at God because he forgave the Ninevites. Jonah seems to be on a roller coaster of emotions because God still has a couple more appointments coming. You see, after he appoints the plant to grow, God also appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it would die. And then God appoints a scorching east wind. And all of a sudden, Jonah wants to die again. You may remember one of God's first appointments in this book. It's found in chapter 1, verse 17, when the Lord appointed appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here on this, friends, but I need us to understand that God's appointments are divine appointments. And they are designed to help you and me better understand, to understand better the will of God, the power of the gospel, and to conform us more and more and more to the image of Christ. James chapter 1 affirms that we should count it all joy. We should count it all joy, my brothers, he says, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let, let steadfastness have its full effect on you, that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The apostle Peter affirms something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he says, for this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you are doing good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight 
of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's, that's the suffering unjustly part. But even when the discipline of God comes, it is for our good. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9 says, besides this, we all have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he, listen, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The appointments of God. God appointed both the shelter and the scorching wind to help us grow in Christ-likeness so that we will experience and embrace the plan of God. His plan to save His elect from all corners of the world. So we can go ahead and get mad. We can understand that God's appointments will be kept. And lastly and ultimately what I think this book and this work is teaching us is that it's time for us to get our priorities straight. It's time for us to get our priorities straight. Verse 9 through the end of this chapter and into this book says but God said to Jonah do you do well to get angry for the plant he says do you have a right to get mad for this plant and Jonah said yes I do yes I do well to be angry angry enough to die he says and the Lord said you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Here's the simple comparison that God makes in his conversation with Jonah. You care about temporary plants. I care about everlasting people. You care about temporary plants, I care about everlasting people. Friends, we care, about more, we care more about Kool-Aid on the carpet than we do souls in heaven. We care more about getting people off our streets instead of getting people in front of the gospel. Most of our plans are central to what we can do. My ministry, my plans, my ideas, my way or the highway. Friends, please. Please, please understand that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. New buildings don't bring people into the kingdom. New personnel don't bring people into the kingdom. 
New programs don't bring people into the kingdom. New shady plants don't bring people into the kingdom. And scorching east winds cannot keep people from the king kingdom. I've read through the Bible a number of times, and I never remember seeing a place where God asks someone like David or Moses or Paul. I don't ever remember God saying something like, you know, I've been doing this so long, I'm out of ideas. Can you help me come up with something? Something creative and new. Something creative to, to draw people into the church. Because, you know, this whole Jesus thing, it just doesn't seem to be working anymore. No, God is very, very clear. God is very clear that too often we will fight to the death either our physical death or the death of our local churches, we will fight to the death over things that have no eternal value. Beloved, I'm 100%, 100% convinced that if we're lifting up the name of the crucified, resurrected Jesus, we could have worship services at 2 o'clock in the morning and this place would be full. If we are lifting up the name of Jesus... We wouldn't have to worry so much about issuing challenges to pray and share the gospel and read the Bible. And by the way, you all have done pretty well this week. And I know everybody's not reporting your Bible reading, but we had just over 2,200 minutes of Bible reading this week. Fantastic, good, tremendous place to start. Let's keep doing that. Keep doing, keep staying in the Word. Keep staying in what thus says the Lord. Jonah's priorities were all kinds of messed up. And this story reminds us that in Christ we have but one priority, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And to preach that gospel, to preach that gospel so that men and women and kids of all walks of life would repent and believe. I found this quote from C.S. Lewis in some reading this past week. And I want to close my thoughts with it. Now we can pick it apart if you want to do that. We'll do that later. I'm just worried about the gist of what he's saying here. Lewis says, this is the whole of Christianity. There is nothing else. It is so easy to get muddled about that. It's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects. Education, buildings, missions, holding services. Look what C.S. Lewis here says. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men unto Christ and to make of them little Christs, which is the literal definition of the word Christian. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. God created that He would call us into a relationship with Him. So let me ask us, let me ask you, in light of eternity... In light of eternity, what are we wasting our time on? What are we wasting our time on? What are we wasting resources on? And I won't say this one too loud, okay? 
what are we pouting about? You know what? The book of Jonah just ends. And many cattle. No real conclusion. No real wrap-up. No rest of the story. We know that, that God would later send the prophet Nahum back to Nineveh to preach their judgment and their destruction, which does come about about 200 years after Jonah's preaching. But other than that, we really don't know anything else about Nineveh. We don't know anything else about Jonah. But I think there's four or five things here that I want us to take away from this book. The first one of those is this. God's word is alive. And he will speak to us through it if we will listen. And when we hear, when we hear from God, we can obey. We can run. We've got to deal with the appointments of God. But we can obey or we can run. I think we also learn in this book that whatever our response, God's will, will not be unfulfilled. God's will will come to pass because God loves all people, even those people, even you, even me. He loves us enough to go to the ends of our ability to comprehend so that we can have an eternal relationship with him. And he will make and he will keep any appointment that is necessary to see that we stay centered in his will. And finally, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, Jesus was three days in the belly of the earth. Both were resurrected and both have a message of eternal hope but here's the difference here's the difference you see Jesus not only preached that message Jesus is that message Jesus is that message he is the message for those people like you and me he is the message for the outcast for the sinners for the troubled and the hurting. He is the message for the addicts and the prisoners and the pain-ridden. Jesus is the gospel for all of us runners. Here today, hear today the word of the Lord. And I pray that we will seek him Seek his word and seek his glory. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer as our worship team comes back to the stage. Father, we thank you that the word of the Lord came to Jonah.